91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. Many people who have grown up in the U.S. still have never heard of Juneteenth, while others will tell you it's the official day slavery ended in America in 1865. Many people are also just recently finding out about the Tulsa Race Massacre of June 1921, in which an entire community called Black Wall Street was burned to the ground and destroyed by a white mob numbering in the hundreds. The death count of mostly African Americans was over 300. KBCS's Kevin Henry recently talked with historian Kwame Abdul Bey, who filled in the details about June 19, 1865, and why he says the country needs to recognize and celebrate Juneteenth. Abdul Bey also talked about the 100-year anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre and the resistance to accepting critical race theory, which has been banned in some states from being taught to students. Kwame Abdul Bey is co-convener of the Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement. He's also a trustee of the Arkansas Historical Association. So many people have come up to me between the Tulsa Race Massacre, as I like to call it, and Juneteenth. So many people have come up to me in the last couple of years and, and said, I, I had no idea. I had no idea about Juneteenth. I didn't know what that was. First of all, maybe if you could talk about why that is over the years, why so, so many people didn't know about it, and why should we know about it now? What is the significance of celebrating, honoring, and understanding what it really means? Well, first of all, may I ask you a question and uh, let me know what they told you that they learned, because you said they came and said, well, I didn't know about this. Well, what do they now know? Well, what they know is, is that Juneteenth the people that have really kind of studied it or you know, went to a webinar or whatever, what they say they know is, is that it was the official day that the black people, and I think it's specifically in Texas, I think kind of stands out, were officially notified that slavery had ended. That's kind of what I keep getting from a lot of people. Uh, yeah, they, they, that was the day on uh, June 19th, 1865, uh, when uh, General uh, George Granger went into the Galveston Bay area uh, as the military governor, and he issued five general orders. One of those orders was order number three that uh, basically reminded the government of Texas and the propertied uh, planters of Texas, that those men and women who had been continued to be kept in slavery even after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued uh, were now guaranteed their freedom. However, that order went on to say that even though you now are free, you must remain on the plantation and continue to work. Well, now, now wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that work exactly? A lot of times when people talk about this, but a lot of times when people talk about this, they only talk about that first sentence. They don't talk about the rest of it. <laughs> 
Well, how does that work? So if, if you stay on the plantation, what would happen if you said, no, I'm not going to stay on the plantation, I'm free, then what would happen to you? Uh, well, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, uh, a lot a lot of times we hear the story that Juneteenth is about uh, the this the enslaved people in Texas finally learning uh, that the Civil War was over and that uh, slavery had been abolished. Uh, none of that is true because the Civil War was not over. The Civil War was not over until months later. Uh, actually, let me see this. The official end date of the Civil War was August 20th, 1866. Uh, the, Emancipation Procla uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was, uh, went into effect on January 1st, uh, 1863. Uh, General Granger's order, General Order Number Three, uh, in Texas, Galveston, Texas, was issued on June nineteenth, eighteen sixty-five. So, the 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 statement that the uh, people who were enslaved in Texas did not know for two years that they were free is a fallacy because the Emancipation Proclamation was a well-documented proclamation. It was actually an executive order uh, from uh, President Abraham Lincoln, uh, but it was well-known. It was publicized in all of the newspapers at the time, including the newspapers in Texas. So there was, uh, the, it's a fallacy to believe that uh, the enslaved people in Texas did not know what was going on. Matter of fact, I personally think that that's an affront to their intelligence to even suggest that. Uh, secondly, uh, it was it had nothing to do with the end of the Civil War. It had it had everything to do with uh, tax, Texas finally being captured. Uh, let me see. Uh, General Robert E. Lee he surrendered on April 9, eighteen sixty five. And his army was the Army of North Virginia. And the flag of his army is the flag that we commonly believe is the flag of the Confederacy, which it is not. Uh, the flag that we today call the Confederate flag is the flag of the army of General Lee from Northern Virginia. So when he surrendered and his army surrendered, uh, the Confederacy had at least a dozen more armies that did not surrender. But we don't hear that story. The fighting continued. And basically what had to happen is the Union Army had to keep advancing and keep having army after army after army surrender. Now, what makes Texas a little bit more unique is Texas was the only state of the Confederacy that was not really affected by the Civil War. Its infrastructure was still in place. Its, uh, its economy was still in place. Whereas all of the other states, their infrastructure and their economy were basically demolished by all of the fighting. So as these armies surrendered, the generals, uh, and uh, the well-to-do planters in those states all escaped to Texas. Texas was the 
place where they all gathered. And they gathered there basically to say, this will be the, our last stronghold where we will continue the fight. So it took two years for the Union armies to make their way to Texas. Now the Union Navy had actually made its way to Texas in uh, 1862. And the Union Navy went on shore in 1862 and got their butts kicked. So they had to retreat. And so for those two and a half, three years, Texas stood out. And actually me being from Arkansas, it's interesting that uh, the uh, senators for Ar from Arkansas, uh, they all, the senators and representatives all fled to Texas. And here in Arkansas, there was a mafioso type uh, of uh, a combination of three different families that ran the state during the 1800s known as the family. And they, they were the ones who basically controlled the wealth in Arkansas. They fled Arkansas and went to Texas. So Texas was where all of the true diehard Confederates that refused to give up went. So when we talk about General Gordon Granger, when he finally made it to Texas in June of 1865, that was when the government of Texas finally fell. The governor, uh, all of the generals, and many of the well-to-do farmers that had escaped Mississippi, had escaped Arkansas, had escaped Louisiana, uh, had escaped Tennessee, they all decided, hey, we're going to now escape to Mexico. So they escaped to Mexico and they actually farmed the new Virginia colony in Mexico outside of what is now Mexico City. Uh, and so that is what is important about Juneteenth. What is important about Juneteenth is that this is when the final Confederate army fell. It doesn't have anything to do with necessarily notifying uh, the enslaved people in Texas. It had more to do with uh, Texas falling to the Union Army. And guess who populated the Union armies that entered Texas? The United States Colored Troops. So really it was when the United States Colored Troops defeated Texas. That is, for me, that's more important for me to celebrate on June 19th, is when these United States Colored Troops that were formerly enslaved uh, were weaponized and they entered Texas and brought an end to the continued rebellion in Texas, even though all of the other Confederate states had fallen and surrendered. Yeah, that is so important to know that because part of what we're talking about today is just how history has been either diminished, glossed over, erased, whitewashed, distorted or totally ignored. Yes. And it's spun in different, you know, it's depending on who you talk to in the source, it's spun a certain way to make certain people look better and certain people look worse and that kind of thing. So, you know, the more knowledge and depth that, you know, I appreciate you bringing to this conversation, the more the people can really get a, a true context of what was going on. So, so do you feel, Indeed. oh, go ahead. No, I, I just say it's, it's really a beautiful thing 
when you hear the whole story and you see things in context because the way that history is taught in schools these days is you learn certain dates certain names certain events but you don't hear the context you don't hear the story behind it uh, and that really breeds opportunities for as you stated these fallacies to enter into the conversation and then, then things get really twisted uh, to uh, state that the enslaved people of Texas for two years they did not even know the condition and what was going on I think that's a disservice to their intelligence and I think that's a disservice to you know what was really going on uh, the real story is that the die-hard uh, Confederates all fled to Texas to put in a last battle and when those uh, colored troops entered Texas from Arkansas they said oh my gosh and then they fled to Mexico well everything that you've said is illuminating how do you feel that that can help we as black people but just people in general in terms of how they look at the present day because there's so much turmoil going on now and there's you know there's people that are are opposing critical race theory and there's people that are just saying oh you know oh, Kwame you need to leave that in the past just let's just get over it why do we always have to keep talking about this stuff right and then now you've got the Tulsa uh, race massacre 100 year anniversary and that some people don't want to deal with that either what is the positive effect or the important effects of knowing the truth behind those two things I just mentioned I guess Juneteenth and the Tulsa race massacre for that matter Indeed. Well, I am in Tulsa right now oh. uh, as a ambassador for the state of Arkansas, along with my wife, Clarice, and we are here to literally learn what it looks like for a state, a county, and a city to actually acknowledge its dark past. Because uh, even though the uh, Tulsa race massacre happened in 1921, the Elaine race massacre in Arkansas happened in 1919, yet two years ago, uh, there was no marked comparison to how these two events were remembered 100 years later. In Arkansas, the governor essentially refused to do anything meaningful uh, for uh, the Elaine race massacre and uh, the government here in Arkansas uh, did very little compared to what's being done by the government of Oklahoma. Uh, so that, sh that gives you two contrasting views on how such things like this should be uh, remembered. Now, when you talk about critical race theory and what's going on with critical race theory, uh, we can compare those who are the opponents of critical race theory to those same planters and generals who had been defeated and they escaped to Texas to join together in a stronghold. The thing is, is critical race theory is literally, when, when you look at it, and I look at it uh, as a uh, incoming law student, uh, critical race theory was actually something that came about in legal studies in the law schools as a way to look at just how present day situations have been affected 
by race. And we have to be critical on how race plays into the prison industrial complex, how race plays into all of these different things. And that's what critical race theory is all about. You cannot know where you're at now today unless you know what got you there. That's all critical race theory is all about. So these opponents to critical race theory, uh, let's just look at them as having escaped to Texas for their last stronghold, but we will keep proceeding and we will defeat them. Well, I think what I've heard from opponents is it seems like they're focusing on the word critical because they keep act taking it personally. Like I've heard things like, well, it's it's designed to make white people feel guilty and it's and it's designed to if it's taught in schools it's going to make white children hate their country and i keep reading it and reading it and i'm going okay maybe i'm missing something right so i mean i know there's the audio books i'm reading you know i'm listening i'm going i don't see what the problem is <laughs> all it's it's just telling me what happened right this is the truth right no uh and what they're really saying when they say that is we don't want our grandchildren to hate us oh that's what they're really saying we don't want our grandchildren and our great grandchildren to know what we did that's what critical uh the opponents of uh, critical race theory are really saying they're saying that we are culpable in this and we need to keep the lid on this as much as we can. We don't care if you teach that to your children, don't teach it to our children because we don't want our children to know the truth. That is what they are really saying to us. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that really makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, but again, I, I think that, and I've even had white people say to me, I feel really guilty. I, you know, I'm embarrassed and I feel guilty. I said, this isn't about you. You don't have to feel guilty or embarrassed. It's about knowing what the past is, learning from it as you move forward into the future, as opposed to, oh yeah, 50 years ago, you know, my, uh, my great, great grandfather was a slave owner, you know, but it's the thing is you're obligated now that you do know the truth as is any other case to do things in the present. You can't go fix the past but you can really be mm -hmm. an important force in the present and in the future. Indeed. And one thing that I would say is that, uh, why are you choosing one segment of the history that you're learning to personalize? You didn't personalize any other part of history that you learned. You didn't personalize what you learned about, uh, uh, George Washington, you didn't personalize what you learned about Abraham Lincoln, you didn't personalize what you learned about uh, John F. Kennedy, but now you're personalizing what you're learning about some of the things that you did not already know, what you thought was the truth. So here's the thing, if you're ashamed, uh, if you're guilty, go ahead, feel ashamed, feel guilty, then pull up your big girl panties and get <laughs> to work. Like you said, now that you have the knowledge, you are responsible for acting on that knowledge. And you have a choice. You can act on that knowledge in a positive way. You can act on that knowledge in a negative way. And I believe that they're acting on that knowledge in a negative way. 
the opposition to critical race theory is really a politically calculated opposition. Uh, it's a calculated opposition that was conceived of in the Southern Baptist Convention in their meeting. I think it was in 2013, 2014, they met in, I believe, Tennessee. And what happened was, is that there was a proclamation that was uh, put forth by the black members of the Southern Baptist Convention. And that proclamation was to basically affirm that critical race theory was, uh, was and is true. And it also fits in with the biblical worldview. The opponents to that, what their argument was, is if we choose to recognize critical race theory as being valid, then what that will do is that will alter the dynamics of who gets to choose who is wrong and who is not wrong. In the biblical worldview, God gets to choose who is wrong and who is not wrong gets to be the final judgment. And what their uh, argument was is that critical race theory uh, gives man an opportunity to give judgment over other men. That's what the whole argument is about. It mm -hmm. has to do with does uh, this fit in with the biblical worldview? One thing that strikes me, in my opinion, and I love your comments on this, is that another reason why there's an opposition or an opposition of just paying too much attention to history is that connection of the past to the present day issues of things like systemic racism, for instance. Because I still think there's a lot of people that want to believe we don't have a systemic problem. We just have bad actors and rotten apples and these isolated kind of unconnected kinds of incidents that happen from time to time, or at least once a week, it seems lately, it seems if they accept critical race theory, then they're admitting that there's problems staring them in the face now that they have to deal with. Not only are they admitting that there are problems staring them in, in the face, again, critical race theory is actually a legal concept. So if they were to admit that critical race theory were in fact valid, then there's some legal ramifications that could be used uh, uh, in the uh, monetary sense, in the business sense, in the land acquisition sense. All of these different uh, senses uh, can incorporate critical race theory in the courtroom and in the legislatures. Uh, and for them, it, it is a clinging to the last vestiges of power that they still have. Uh, and the, the real simple solution to systemic racism is when white people decide to give up the power they have and to share power together with others. And it's until white people as a whole, and particularly those white people that are in power, decide that there should be power sharing in this country 
until they decide that we're going to continue to have systemic racism. We're going to continue to have opposition to critical race theory because once you give up power and you have to share it with others, that means you no longer get to be the end all to say all about what happens and what does not happen. You have to actually check in with somebody. It's pretty much like a marriage. You know, I'm married, you're married. We can't walk in the house and just say, you do this, you do that. We have to check in with the wife. Uh, so, in, uh, so marriage is a power sharing uh, opportunity and the end of systemic racism incorporates a power sharing opportunity when you actually share power with those upon which you have used power against. Uh, the, the modern example of that is what happened in South Africa uh, with their Truth and Reconciliation Commissions and everything, uh, where uh, the dynamic change, and uh, you didn't see uh, the uh, black South Africans go and kill off all the white, white Afrikaners, that didn't happen. Uh, so, you know, we have to remind uh, the people here in the United States, uh, they didn't kill them over there. Why do you think we're going to wipe you guys out? Well, the fear, I think fear and power to a fear of loss of power is, yes. I guess, what resonates with me. Well, let me ask you this. You said you're in Tulsa now, and you said that there are activities that are happening uh, around the, the race massacre. So why don't mm -hmm. you tell me about that a little bit? Well, the thing is, is that uh, uh, the city of Tulsa and the state of Oklahoma have invested millions of dollars in uh, this centennial. Uh, the centennial is actually tomorrow. Uh, Today is the 100th uh, anniversary, and I use that term very loosely, but 100 years ago was when uh, the young black teenager was in, who was working as an elevator operator in downtown Tulsa was wrongfully accused of assaulting a white teenager, female teenager, who had gotten on the elevator with him. That did not happen. Uh, and he was arrested and he was beaten brutally uh, in jail. And today is the day where uh, the, uh, the people of what was then known as Negro Town, that's what it was called, Negro Town. Today it's called the Greenwood District or Black Wall Street. Uh, but that's when they got their arms together uh, and they began uh, to prepare to go free him because they knew he was going to be lynched. So the men of uh, Black Wall Street got their weapons and they were, uh, they were all veterans. Uh, the majority of them were veterans. Uh, so they had fighting skills and everything. And so they had gotten their arms together 100 years ago uh, to go and to free this young man so that he would not be lynched. Uh, as far as the events are concerned, uh, the events actually started about two weeks ago, and they're going to go on for another two weeks. So it's literally a month of events, remembrances. Uh, the governor of Oklahoma issued a proclamation calling today 
the uh, a day of prayer and a day of uh, remembrance uh, and all of the flags are flying at half staff. So uh, it's it's really for me to see what did not happen two years ago with the Elaine race massacre in Arkansas and to see what's going on here. And there are literally thousands of brothers and sisters from all over the world that are here in Tulsa right now. I've met so many brothers and sisters from all over the United States, met a couple from Canada, uh, met a couple from London, England that are here uh, to observe this. So this is uh, a pretty monumental uh, uh, group of weeks that's happening here. My wife and I will be here through the uh, June the 7th, being a part and participants in all of this stuff. Uh, One of the things that is happening here in conjunction with that is the National Black Power Convention. And the National Black Power Convention is being held at uh, Mount Vernon AME Church uh, on uh, Greenwood uh, Drive, which is of the main street uh, in, in the Greenwood district. And the beautiful thing about the uh, National Black Power Convention is, I mean, we have a lot of Black Panthers here right now. The old Black Panther Party and the new Black Panther Party, uh, the Nation of Islam is here. Uh, You got some Hebrew Israelites here. A lot of uh, people are here to sit down at the same table and have conversations about, okay, what do we do moving forward? Uh, So there's a a lot of different levels of a lot of different things that are going on here in Tulsa over the next couple of weeks. Uh, Yesterday was the Second Amendment March. And so you had brothers from all over that was decked in their firearms marching through the streets of Tulsa to uh, let them know it will never happen again. (laughs) Well, and on that note, well, two things. One is I recently saw a map, you've probably seen this map of, it's a map of the United States with all the different massacres on it and the different locations. Um, And my question is, is do you feel, especially with the attention that's and rightfully so has been given to uh, Juneteenth recently and the and Tulsa race massacre, do you feel optimistic that other cities, other institutions, schools will start honoring and recognizing and educating people without all this resistance? Uh, I am optimistic from the standpoint that uh, no matter what, it's going to eventually happen. Uh, I do know uh, in certain parts of the United States, uh, it's going to be a lot easier with a lot less resistance. Here in uh, Oklahoma, it seems that the state legislature here is extremely receptive to uh, this education being taught. Matter of fact, the University of Oklahoma uh, last summer had a I think it was like a five week mandatory course uh, for uh, public school teachers to teach them how to teach difficult history. And uh, I'm actually 
uh, while I'm here, I'll be over at the campus uh, to discuss with the professor who created that on how we can replicate that in Arkansas and in other places as well, uh, because uh, what we can do uh, with what's going on here in Tulsa is we can use it as a road, you know, what's going on here is trailblazing and we can use this as a roadmap on how other locales are doing this. Another state that is at the forefront of this is Maryland. Uh, the governor of Maryland about three weeks ago issued a, the first ever a full pardon of all of the lynching victims in Maryland, as the majority of those lynching victims were broken out of jail and lynched after they had been accused or convicted of various crimes. Uh, so uh, he issued a pardon to those 43 lynched victims. And with that pardon, now that they are officially exonerated on the books, now that those descendants can go and get legal action for real and true reparations for what happened to uh, their ancestors. Okay. So I do see that it is possible and that it is probable that this will happen. It won't happen at the same rate through uh, uniformly throughout the United States. I know in Arkansas, it's going to be a lot more resistance than what's going on here in Oklahoma or what happened in Maryland, but it will happen. And it's the work uh, of the Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement in concert with such organizations as the Equal Justice Initiative out of Montgomery, Alabama, to keep the heat up and keep the fight going until we all realize through our education system that it is not until we learn our history, our true history and our exact history that we can really truly move forward uh, with a better tomorrow. Uh, you know, the Sankofa bird explains that very well. You have the Sankofa bird that is facing forward but looking backward because we can't move forward unless we first look backwards. Kwame Abdul Bey is co-convener of the Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement. He's also a trustee of the Arkansas Historical Association. Abdul Bey just received his bachelor's degree in paralegal studies from the Liberty University School of Law. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.